Welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast, brought to you by the University of Minnesota Medical School. I'm your host, Madeline Ahern, and in today's episode, I will be interviewing Jacob Tolar, who is the Dean of the University of Minnesota Medical School. He's a distinguished McKnight professor in the Department of Pediatrics, Blood and Marrow Transplant, and Cellular Therapy. He's also the Vice President for Clinical Affairs at the University of Minnesota, Board Chair for the University of Minnesota Physicians, and Co-Leader of mHealth Fairview. While his research focuses on gene therapy for the correction of genetic disease, we know him as a strong supporter of the artificial intelligence and medicine movement within our school and are excited to have him on our show today. All right. Dean Tolara, thank you for joining us today. I'm delighted to be here with you, Madeline. Yeah. So to give a little background to our listeners, Dean Talar has been a huge supporter of the Medicine and Machine Learning Club. We're so grateful for that. It's not often that the dean of a medical school will take such a special interest in a club. But then again, uh, Dean Talar, I suppose you have a strong interest in this subject. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And I have been... Uh... I've been very impressed by our club. You know, I really, you know, I thought, you know, that there is this magnetic field about your group, you know, and the 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 ambition and the discipline and the intellect, you know, that comes to it. it it's really, you know, uh, very, very appealing. And I'm I'm grateful to you and your colleagues for putting this together. And uh, the uh, the machine learning, artificial intelligence, you know, I would have to start a little afar, if that's okay. You can interrupt me at any time, you know, because it's it's your podcast. It's not me. It's not about me for sure. But my thinking about this is that uh, we have uh, devoted our lives and careers to medicine, and we are here for a very simple reason. We are uh, alleviating human suffering. We are in the business of making people full, active put them back together, you know, and recover the freedoms that will dissipate, as we have all seen, with injury, with disease, with age sometimes, certainly with disability, and the, 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 the honor and the privilege of being a part of the lives of people that we can help restore to their freedoms and to their full lives and full intensity is matched by none other pursuit that I can think of. So the artificial intelligence is a tool. Machine learning is a tool. It's it's uh, in 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 very you know similar ways. It's like a stethoscope. You know, it's like an ultrasound. You know, it's like a you know like an X-ray, and it's just a different tool. And the point you know that's so important about this is that it is how we use the tools uh, determines the outcomes. It's not the tools themselves. It's really what we do with them. And I see enormous impact of the machine learning and artificial intelligence in the in the field of medicine because it's such a powerful tool. And uh, I don't, you know, I should also state it in the negative. What I don't see is doctors going out of business or, you know, somehow, you know, uh, our patients being taken care for by robots, because that's not what the patients want. You know, every patient that I've ever taken care of, she or he wants me to be present. She, they actually want me to be there with them, look them in the eye and, and talk to them. What I have, however, is the limitations of my, uh, of my you know, feeble brain between the two ears. And that is that if you look at this in, in a purely 
in a purely physiologic ways. You know, though everybody knows that that brain, in contrast to other organs, is really not a cell on top of a cell. It's a it's a it's a circuit. The 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 unit of of thought, consciousness, and processing by human brain is really a circuit of of, of cells rather than individual cells. And uh, the the mechanics of this is such that uh, these little vesicles, you know, talk to each other across the cells. And, and there's a limit, there's a physiological, biochemical limit to how much you can, uh, can do with this. So, uh, uh, so if, you, if you maximize the, uh, the, the capacity of the brain, how many, Madeline, how many thoughts you think you can have per second? Oh, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm just thinking about one thing at a time, <laughs> but I'm sure more than that, I'm sure. Oh, 40. Okay. 40 is, you know, the limit, you know, on, on, on that. So if you expand it across the, the, the usual lifespan, we all have about 1 billion, B billion thoughts available to us in our lifetime. It's a lot of thoughts, you know, it's a lot of complexity and it's a lot of uh, creativity. And there is a, there are a lot of freedoms of choice, you know, in all of this, but when you compare it to a, usual, you know, high power, but, a, you know, standard computer, it's about 10 billion thoughts a, or, you know, a, a maneuvers, uh, you know, uh, 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 computational uh, uh, tasks per second. Okay, so this is incomparable. The magnitude of the pure mechanics of the computer science of the machine learning is uh, is, is incomparable to the mechanics of the human brain. It's no different, however, than other senses and other uh, capabilities of human body and human mind that has been enhanced by, you know, you take a microscope or you're looking at the stars. You know, many, many things, you know, that we do in medicine are uh, extension of our senses, you know, and have been incredibly helpful to us. And we almost, you know, internalize them as a, as a part of what we do. You know, we look at an EKG, we look at x-ray, we look at, you know, EEGs, you know, we, we are very comfortable looking, you know, at the extenders, you know, of our, our senses. So artificial intelligence and machine learning is similar to this and uh, has also its limitations. So if you look at the, um, um, Madeline, you are supposed to interrupt me because I can go <laughs> for a really long time. Yeah, no, keep uh, talking. It's great. Okay, so but you know, again, you're the boss, so so you need okay. to tell me. So, but, but what I want to uh, spend a minute on is uh, what is uh, how do we know things are actually real, and it, it matters, you know, in the machine learning, the causal inf inference. And so, so there's a there are several layers of the causal inference. You know, the first level is you know if something happens over here. How, what is the chance that something happens in, in, in response to it? It's a very, very classic. Many animals have it. You know, it's, it's like, you know, you go to the river, uh, you know, and, and the bird, you know, will know, you know, the fish is over here. The second layer of this is, uh, you know, what if, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the fish, you know, at the, at, the, at the pond or the river, you know, what if they, they happen to be there only at a certain time of day or certain time of year? So that's the second layer of this. And some animals have it. You know, non-human primates have it. You know, some of the very advanced um, sea species, you know, dolphins, whales, you know, have that as well. They can sort of remember and use that in the predictive model. 
what no other animal uh, except for human have is that contrafactual uh, reasoning, which is the magical uh, what if, you know, what if I took this away and what would happen after that? And that is something, you know, that is very unique to human mind. And very importantly, the machine learning as we have it is uh, able only of the first level of this causal inference, not of the second, not of the third. So there are limitations, there are constraints in this. So I would be an advocate of what I call um, realism in this, you know, and, and be against the, the hype, you know, that sometimes is associated with artificial intelligence, exactly because I respect it so much and exactly because I, I, I do think that it's enormous transformative power. So it's, a, it's almost a call against this unscrupulous optimism that sometimes is associated with the shiny objects that, that we, you know, see. And we owe it to, the, to our patients. We owe it to the communities. We owe it to our field. And as a land-grant university, our only reason uh, for existence, our raison d'etre is that we serve others. We serve Minnesotans, we serve the community. So we have to domesticate the parts of the machine learning and artificial intelligence in a way that is symbiotic with human intelligence. I already uh, shared with you my thoughts about uh, how human intelligence is irreplaceable in this. And at the same time, magnify the ability of the machine learning and artificial intelligence. Absolutely. So I'm now going to enter a self-imposed pause. because no, I... That's fantastic. And I think something that you mentioned that I think is really interesting is, you know, it can't augment the ability of the person. And so a lot of literature talks about how artificial intelligence isn't intended to replace any jobs or any physicians. It's intended to make our lives and our jobs easier and to prevent us from doing kind of the, the what we call the grunt work. Um, and so I think that's really interesting that you bring that up. But before we delve into these like very, very interesting and complicated topics, I do want to give our listeners a little bit more information about you. So I'll ask, can you tell us a little bit about like how you became interested? You mentioned AI is this powerful tool, but I think it's also a not very well known tool. So how did you become interested in AI? And also, how did you kind of go through your journey into academic medicine? Well, you are very kind to ask. <laughs> uh, uh, at the risk of being boring, uh, again, start you know from afar. Uh, it's uh, absolutely everything that I have done that was any good uh, was done by people around me. If I were uh, in a position to be uh, relevant in uh, clinical care, in the operating room, in a in a uh, in the in my bone marrow transplant clinic, or uh, in, in the basic science labs and now, you know, in, in leadership, it was really because of the gifts that were given to me, uh, essentially unearned, not essentially, essentially unearned. I, I really had nothing to do with it. And one of these gifts is I've been always interested in almost everything. And uh, so from the very early age, you know, I really was interested in math and physics and, uh, but also arts, opera, you know, law, medicine, among others. And then, you know, I decided to go to medicine and I have not left the, uh, the, the, the other interests, you know, behind. And I, in fact, have always been puzzled in a way why we are uh, putting people to different schools and somebody gets MD, somebody gets PhD, somebody gets something else. Because in medicine, 
it seemed to me that all of that is extremely relevant. Because if I have a 16-year-old with a uh, uh, with acute leukemia, the what I know about chemotherapy and transplant and physiology and biochemistry and whatever I know about the, the genomics and, and it's 10% of what I do. 90% of that is that I sit in front of that person and say, and her family, and uh, try to help navigate that she's going to lose two years of her life. She's going to uh, lose her hair. She may or may not have children. That is what I do. And I can tell you that the acute sciences, the, 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 the rigid, you know, uh, which I love the science, I, I really love that, uh, is very little help there. So, so the, the reason I am interested in artificial intelligence and machine learning is that it's one of the components, it's one of the composites of the mosaic that I find practical and useful. Because the, if there's a single denominator of, of my interests through the personal and professional life, it is, uh, it is interest in doing, interest in, in making things useful to somebody uh, typically my patients. And it, it's a two-way street. I learned from my patients how to live my life more than from anybody else that I can tell, you know, and they can identify. So this is not a, you know, sort of I'm giving something, you know, I receive, you know, quite a bit. And the same thing with my students, you know, medical students, grad students, junior faculty, they, it's this reverse mentoring almost, you know, that, that I, that I sense in this. So, so the, uh, the, and I enjoy uh, math and physics, and I enjoy computer science, and I, I always was, was, was intrigued by uh, how we understand things that are not within our reach. You know, how do you go about uh, putting together, uh, say, uh, theory of relativity and, and quantum theory, that if you think about this, they, are told, they, they cannot be put together. And I'm very interested in, you know, how, you know, this can be put together. So in machine learning, I have been always very interested in, in the way how the deep neural networks are different from the human association and human conscience and human thought. And they are very different. You know, the, the, neuron, the, the word neuronal is, is uh, I don't know if you would agree with it, but it's a little misleading, you know, outside. It's, it's not a really a neuron. It's, it's the, the, the dramatic um, uh, ability, I think, of the, of the construct of the alternative processing of information. It's sort of a Claude Shannon's uh, way of lo looking at information as, a, again, a neutral essentially think, you know, that, that can be positive or negative and going from the analog ways, you know, we are looking at life to a digital one, to a binary one, for zero or one, right? You know, and, and, and taking the, 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 the slightly different way of uh, quote-unquote thinking that happens in the, in, the, in the machine, you know, from Alan Turing's, you know, uh, test, you know, how can you tell that the person in front of you is a computer or not? And the chance, chance that in, as you probably know because you are smiling you yep. know it, it's really it's really really difficult to cheat yeah. you know it's, it, it it has really not yet been done you know that you uh, that you can actually uh, that the computer even programmed you know in a in a the best possible way we know can actually fake be quote unquote fake uh, simulate is a better word uh, being a human so 
I'm very interested in, you know, how this works. I'm very interested how it can be applied, you know, to medicine. But, you know, the other examples obviously are uh, driverless cars, you know, or, you know, uh, how you recognize that your email is spam. You know, uh, you know, there is a, you know, credit transactions, whether they are fraudulent or not. But the more medical things is are to me, eminently useful, you know, in this. And that is where the magnetism of, of machine learning and artificial intelligence comes to my mind, which is, what if, what if you had a prescription done in a doctor's office, not based on what are, what is he familiar with prescribing, but rather based on on the patient's physiology and the, 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 the disease or task at hand? What if the 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 rare and you may or may not know you know my a lot of my clinical practice is in rare genetic disorders and i had a i had one of the parents uh uh count count calculate uh, based on a uh, on a uh, you know sort of scanning of many families how how many doctors did it take to get to me 4.6 this is enormous this is an archive of grief, if you think about this. These are people, typically mothers, fathers as well. I'm not, you know, it's not meant to be gender or something. But these mothers sitting in doctor's office to be told, oh, you're a young mother. You, you, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, just for, it's just, he's going to grow out of it. And she knows he won't. She just doesn't know what it is. And she goes and never gives up. Of course, it's her kid. She never gives up until she gets to somebody who actually takes the care and takes the, the effort to, uh, to, to look into this. So what if, is my second point, a, a general practitioner on either side of Atlantic or Pacific, anywhere, you know, had an immediate access to that knowledge that would make her immediately fluent in these rare uh, conditions and diseases, and it would save the, the enormous amount of suffering and delay in diagnosis for people that 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 that, that really need this uh, done. Third it's, is oh, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say it's interesting you mentioned that. I was just the other day reading an article. I don't know if you know uh, myelodysplastic syndrome. Uh, yeah. So for our listeners, it's a disease. I think it develops mainly in the elderly. It's characterized by abnormal morphology of blood cells. But I actually recently read an article that was using convolutional neural networks to aid the diagnosis of this syndrome, which I thought was so interesting, but it kind of goes with what you were saying. Anyway, I'll let you continue. No, no, this is fantastic. Uh, uh, MDS or myelodysplastic syndrome or leukemia, that's a, you know, that's a majority, it's a large part of you know what I do for a living in the clinical side uh, of things. Uh, the 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 other is errors. Uh, it is it is humbling, it is frightening in a way for a practitioner to recognize how many errors we make as a uh, as a profession, as a system, as a uh, you know as a as an organization, and these errors in many many ways are preventable. But you need that that phenomenal. Uh, computing power to actually make that happen, to to have this warning sign. You know, in oncology, we have these black box signs. You know, you just don't do this if right. And 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 the human brain gets tired. Human brain gets uh, distracted. Uh, computer doesn't right. You know, if you look at the the the, the sheer ability 
to amass that wealth of of digital data, digitized data. And it can be anything from electronic health record to the voice recognition. It can be a, a machine vision, you know, which is really, really important in pathology and radiology, you know, how, how a computer can see things that a human eye and human, you know, uh, occipital brain just cannot process, you know, this way. If you can take all of this into account, you will diminish the number of times we are uh, not acting in the uh, in the best way, you know, that we would like as a profession. Absolutely. Did I answer your question? Maybe yeah. I did. Yes, no, you definitely answered my question. And I think you bring up kind of an interesting point about like machine vision. So there was actually an article, I think, oh, it must have been, I think the Journal of Academic Medicine recently published 2000, 2001 article talking about how AI can be used in competency-based medical education. Um, and they were kind of talking about, um, you know, what are the possibilities for uh, using in a in a preclinical setting for students and using almost machine vision to look at students and identify mistakes students are making and you're, you're kind of talking about the amazing number of medical amazingly terrible number of medical errors that happens and what if we can teach students to catch these errors early and prevent that and I just I wonder if you have any thoughts on that or if you see that being incorporated into medical education at the U of M. It's a great great question and absolutely yes. You know, that's another realm, you know, because the uh, the education, you know, that's the school in medical school. This is what we do. OK, <laughs> we are in 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 this enormously uh, serious, I think, and uh, uh, responsible position of preparing uh, doctors, you know, for their path. And we better be better and better at doing that. And one way of being, getting better is this almost co-production of uh, training, you know, with the technology. And you are, Madeline, you are, you are pointing to a very, you know, important thing, which is the, the observational tools. So we have, for example, uh, the M simulation, we have two floors of the uh, uh, health science education building devoted just to that. There's a lot of data that is not only from that, uh, from that side of the, in this sense, you know, either uh, a patient that is an actor, actually, or, a you know, digitized, you know, model, you know, of a disease, there is equal amount of data from the other side. How do people react to it? And, you know, how do students react to this? And I think that aid that you're pointing to, when the observation is, uh, is, is much uh, deeper and multi-layered, and that wealth of information that comes from the way how learning uh, is, you know, uh, happening in human mind is exactly where artificial intelligence should be. And uh, it is, uh, as many things that we do, it is a part of a moral matrix. Almost everything you do in medicine has an ethical connotation, and it should have, you know, by the way, because that's why I personally think that, that medicine is one of these things that, uh, one of these pursuits that, that uh, if you can devote your life to it, you can actually grow uh, into something that you uh, you should be. You, you can become who you are faced, you know, with the uh, immediacy, intensity, and, and sometimes gravity of what you do. When I think about, uh, which I do, uh, you know, many times, you know, this uh, these years, you know, in society, and yes, I'm totally aware of the fact that a lot of things on the social media, 
uh, and, and the discussion in the society is polarized and you know and, and amplified by different ways but and it's a sort of an intellectual equivalent of an ambient noise what what what, what stays in this is that we look back at our past and say how come 50 years ago uh, our predecessors did this or did that or didn't pay attention to that when i do this and this is again the third layer of the causal inter inference that we talked about. This counterfactual, and I put myself into into uh, uh, my grandchildren. I have a two-year-old granddaughter, but, oh. which is the joy of my life. I babysit her on weekends, and you know, it's it, it just it, it's wonderful. Uh, but when I think about you know her and her children fifty years from now, what is it that they're gonna be horrified about us? Yeah, there are three things that come to my mind. One is how we treat farm animals. Mm. Uh, second is how we treat uh, people that are aged in, in the latter part of lives. And third one is what you said, how we educate people. Because I went to medical school, which I admire, you know, one of the you know, oldest medical schools in, in the world. Uh, but, but, you know, it was essentially you memorized, you know, a couple of books, you know, and then uh, you were in front of a, concilium of the of the professors and they could ask you anything and they can fail you or not you know you learned a lot of things you know to react on your spawn and everybody was the same you yep. see and that's not how human brain works because we all learn in in different ways so the artificial intelligence going back to your question where we started and the article in academic medicine that i looked up as well uh, is uh, exactly where we are can be personalized, you know, because a lot of uh, artificial intelligence and, and and machine learning is, of course, about personalized medicine, and uh, the personalized education that you described, you know, is an equivalent of that. And we better be able to uh, to to do that. And uh, in, in you know, if you allow me to extend the parallel of the of the uh, of the uh, of the medicine. The first medicine was uh, what I would call intuitive. You know, you were, you know, uh, that's sort of the, uh, uh, the, the, the ancients, the Greeks, you know, the, you, the, the Romans, you know, the, uh, uh, the Indian subcontinent had very advanced medicine. China had a very advanced medicine in this, but it was intuitive. You know, it was sort of a, you know, it seems like a good idea to do this. The second one was um, more, sort of renaissance and, uh, and uh, you know, sort of closer, you know, which goes back to our discussion about math and physics. You know, the, the modern medicine started as, in my reading of this, as looking at physics. You know, that was the Galileo, that was the Newton, that was like, we can actually understand what we don't see. I mean, now it becomes like, oh, of course we can, but it was not so obvious and it is not, you know, innate, you know, to us. So this empirical medicine that went through chemistry, especially in Germany and France, you know, in the 18th and 19th century, then went to this recognition that, oh, there's a drug, you know, there seems to be a lock and key receptor, and perhaps we can use these medications in a certain way. And then, then became the precision medicine. And this is really the last 50 years, you know, not more than that, uh, when, uh, when the, the, it's maybe even even shorter than that. I, I would think, you know, it would be sort of a, you know, the beginning of my field, you know, was uh, Peter Medawar and Burnett, you know, that recognized that unbelievably, you know, our antibody and immune repertoire is not inherited. It's a, com 
computational, combinatorial, you know, uh, acquired almost, you know, ability. Nobody would expect that, right? You know, but but it was clear that we all are different, and that's why we cannot transplant, you know, uh, easily, you know, from one person to another, you know, blood transfusions and so forth. So it was the beginning of this, and then the human genome sequencing. I think, you know, two thousand, you know, uh, Venter and 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 IH. Uh, sort of put it, you know, to bed, you know, we are all different, you know, and then you have epigenetics, you have microRNA, and you have many other, you know, variants on this. But where we are living right now, I think, is the, what I would call high-performance medicine, which is you take all that knowledge and put it to work, you know, where you really need it. And you can put it to work in different ways. We talked about the rare disease, so there's the genetics, genomics, you know, uh, pathogenic variants, you know, how, how you actually go about this. The second layer can be, you know, this image free microscopy. You don't have to actually take a photograph of a, of a slide, you know, to analyze it, right? You know, there's this ghost cytometry. You don't actually have to do the cytometry to understand, you know, the surface, you know, antigens and, and, and the markers of this, but it goes further than that. It, it gets to uh, how we, how we look at the, uh, at the uh, what's happening in doctor's office, you know. So what you have now is uh, again, it's going to be seen by our uh, children and grandchildren as ridiculous, you know. Which is we see somebody for annual visit, you know, once a year. I mean, you know, she's scared. You know, you have a white coat. You know, the blood pressure goes up. You have a one snippet of her chemistry, you know. And and yes, you know, you do some physical exam and you say, you know, see me in a year. That seems like unbelievably ancient, you know, because what we have now at our disposal is that with a simple variable, you know, Fitbit or, you know, some kind of a, you know, additional, you know, um, I don't, but, you know, almost everybody has an Apple Watch or some kind of a Fitbit or var variable of sorts, you can actually have a year-long uh, uh, trace of uh, electrolytes from skin, you know, heart rate, you know, how does she exercise? How does she do this? How does she sleep? What does she eat? You know, you can put microbiome in this. Wow, this is the real information. And then you spent your annual visit, you know, looking at the patterns that are actionable. And you say, well, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know, these, you know, these, these breakfasts with bacon and eggs, you know, are not which you should be doing. I don't know, you know, maybe there are changes, you know, in this, or maybe the starch diet is, is you should probably move away from this, right? You know, so this real time, continuously on primary care, I see as an extremely, extremely powerful model is gonna uh, change the standard of medicine. And the, 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 the next one, I think, which is also important is, is the question of ownership. So unless you, uh, you know, uh, you know, one has to pay attention to this, but you can, uh, you can take your credit card and go to ATM in outer Mongolia and you'll get cash. Okay. Right. And if you go from one clinic of one healthcare system, cross the street here in Minneapolis to another one, you cannot transfer your records. You, you are not owner of your health data. And if you stop and think about this, that, that's, that, that's not good because you actually cannot act upon your health data. So the, the other thing that machine learning and, and artificial intelligence enable, I think, with the other technology is that people uh, like you and I, 
will be in control of their health data, not only that they can have a chip and, you know, if they go to Hawaii or Montana, you know, to see their newborn nephew, you know, they will be able, if they need to, you know, go to any clinic and say, look, you know, this is my this is my chart, essentially, and, and, and it's immediately actionable. But it's also uh, how do you make a decision or decisions about your health with the agency of, of a human being that I am in charge. You know, I'm in charge of my diet. I am in charge of my uh, exercise. I am in charge of uh, the people who depend on me, my children, my family, my patients. No, no, not my patients. I mean, I mean like... You know, <clears throat> You respect the boundaries, of course, of all of this, you know, relationship. But but the, it changes from the uh, from the somewhat you know hidden business model being in charge of you essentially, to the agency that you have about the decisions you make on yourself with authority. That the human consciousness, and we are coming all the way back, you know, to how our brain, you know, is constructed, can really be a part of your health and maintenance of health. Absolutely. That's fantastic. And I, I find it interesting you talk about uh, like electronic health records and how those are have such a difficult time being shared amongst clinics. I would be curious if you've ever had, and I was recently in clinic where we had a woman come in with complicated health issues and she slapped down on her table all of her her whole pile of paper health records. And we've we've come like in a terrible way, full circle in that we moved to the electronic health record system. It's not serving patients. And now patients are trying to take their health, their advocate for their health within their own hands and bring along all of their data. I'd be curious to hear if you've ever had that happen before. Oh, many times. You know, in fact, you know, it's a, uh, until recently, uh, it has been, you know, my usual, uh, you know, end of the day that I would get, you know, and thanks to my team on the in the clinic, I would get all these paper records, you know, for, you know, uh, and I would spend time, hours sometimes, you know, going through this illegible handwriting, you know, this is here, <laughs> this is there. No, seriously, you know. Yeah, doctor handwriting. Yeah, yeah, and, and put it, you know, my handwriting is awful, but, you know, ask my daughters. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, and, and try to make a sense out of this. So what I was hoping, and, and I have been profoundly disappointed with electronic health record, that this is going to be easier. Because if there's one virtue, one cardinal virtue of computerized information it, that is easily searchable, it's easy to get information out of it. And, you know, we can do this in retail, we can do it in air travel, and medicine is just totally lost, you know, in all of this, right? And uh, so now the problem is that, uh, that we as physicians, you know, we spend a lot of time typing into the, uh, into the uh, electronic chart, which uh, has been really difficult to see as an advance on information because I actually miss, you know, these simple paragraphs that my consults, you know, and I hope I provided the same in reverse, Provided, you know, when they ask, oh, how about this this high platelet count? Can you do something about it? Or how about that 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 preemie that needs to be anticoagulated? What, what do you think? And and we that's what we did. You know, we wrote that little thing. But now you have these reams, you know, of tables and 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 composites, and you people cut and paste. You know, it's it's really difficult, you know, to to navigate this. And the information value of this is going very 
quickly down and the uh the 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 unspoken uh, uh flaw of this is that the electronic health record that we have now is actually not an information tool at all it's a billing tool it's a it's a right you know so so it has a totally different purpose than that so i i i i have a deep sympathy and empathy for people who are trying to take control of their own health by bringing to your office to your clinic you know these 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 big uh, printed pages because they are trying to recover we are back to the agency they are trying to recover control of of, of, of circumstances uh, that are built that that happen you know by you know voice of fate or choice of necessity they they take away freedoms and you know one of the things that we have seen I think you've seen it as much as I did is that the absolutely overwhelming nearly paralyzing uh, reaction to almost anyone that I've ever seen uh, that is faced with a grave condition or injury is this loss of control. Mm. You know, I, I'm not in control. I don't know, you know, where are, who are these people? You know, I am half naked, you know, in the ED, you know, they are talking among themselves, you know, I don't know where I'm going. You know, there are a million other things that are happening, you know, around me and I'm not in control. So they are trying to gain back the control and I am, I am, uh, you know, from, you know, John Locke, you know, and, you know, and some of the founders of the Republic, I am a, very much a, in favor of people being accountable to themselves and being given the tools to do that. And I see uh, the, the, the liberating effect of uh, iPhone. You know, everybody has an iPhone moment, 2007. You know, you probably remember when you had your first iPhone or, or, or some, some device of that kind. It's a liberating thing in, in a way. And I, I'm as bad with social media as they get. I should don't, you know, engage too well uh, on, on that front. Uh, but that's because, you know, I, you know I, I just, you know, don't have time for some of that or would like to devote, and it's not, it, it would like to devote more time to uh, 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 thick books. You know, I like reading, you know, and, and, and stuff. Uh, but, 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 but the liberating moment is that the technology is available and I personally am very optimistic about uh, people uh, essentially taking it uh, to their hands and having their own record, you know, on the iPhone and being able to act with this. I am very, uh, very much uh, looking forward to, and we are trying in small and big ways to do this, to take away that 4,000 keystroke date of a physician that you know, I must be the most expensive scribe you have ever seen. You know, if you put me for two hours after my clinic, which is exactly what I do, uh, that I type, you know, my notes, you know, in this, you don't want me to do that. You, you, you want to figure out somehow, you know, that, that this is done, you know, somebody helps me with this or something helps me with this. And uh, uh, we have great, great scientists and great practitioners in the, uh, in the medical school that are working on this. We have a uh, uh, Dr. Shannon, you know, is, is an expert, you know, in sort of a voice recognition. We have uh, Dr. Melton Mew, who is leading the new center for learning health system. And we have a number of people that are working on, on exactly that, making it more useful, making it more understandable, making it more real. 
That's amazing. And we're kind of dancing around this topic, but I, I think we'd be remiss not to talk about it in this episode. The work that you're doing uh, in the treatment of patients with uh, recessive epidermolysis bullosa and also your research with hematopoietic stem cell transplants. I would love to hear a little bit about these aspects of your career. And also, are you incorporating any artificial intelligence into those areas? Well, thank you for asking. So, <laughs> um, so let's start with uh, ED. Uh, Epidermolysis bullosa is one of these uh, uh, conditions that uh, are remarkably uh, difficult from patient standpoint and uh, uh, and uh, incurable. You know the you know for an oncology you know. As an oncologist, you know I I, I certainly am uh, serving patients that uh, that not always uh, are able to live through their diagnosis, and I see it as a again a privilege and honor to be a, be there for them. You know whatever uh, whatever the path is, uh, the uh, the the cruelty almost of uh, having a child that's born with uh, severe form, generalized severe form of epidermolysis bullosa is that, you know, it's, 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 it's that story, you know, that everybody waits, you know, for the new baby, you know, very sort of a little mixture of anxiousness and hope, you know, but mostly, you know, very hopeful and sort of optimistic. And then the baby's born and uh, half of her skin is gone. And uh, that, uh, you know, there are very few things that would compare to that. And, uh, and it gets worse from there. You know, that never heals, essentially. And there are more and more wounds, you know, coming on as, 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 as the uh, child, you know, ages. And uh, eventually they all die of squamous cell carcinoma. Uh, so the, the, the sheer challenge... To the sheer magnitude of the disease was uh, the motivation for my team. And uh, what we were uh, given a gift of is that we were, and it was not my idea, that's really important, that most of the ideas that we have put in practice were not mine for sure, and not even my team. It was a mother of two boys with this that came with this. And she said, well, you are doing this, all this transplant thing, you know, why don't you use stem cells for, for this. And nobody has done this before. So this is, uh, so we did, and we did the, uh, the scientific way because nobody's interested, at least I'm not interested in the sort of romance of, uh, you know, a home run and, you know, magic, you know, this, you know, pure, whatever. Um, I'm interested in the reality, how we build a case. So we build a case. We went to uh, animal models of EB. We tested the, the every, stem cell in my lab that I could get my hands on. And yes, you know, we were able to see that this uh, works in animal models. And only then uh, we brought it to clinical trials. And, and then we showed they show has a remarkable impact on, uh, on, on the disease itself. So it is, a, uh, to my knowledge, and then, then it's really important. It's like the machine learning and everything in, in computer. You iterate. You, you, you never rest. You know, there are no definitive statements in science. Because if the, uh, and that's really important, the trade-off of knowing the ability to have the, 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 the knowledge and understanding, uh, the trade-off is that it's never done. It's never definitive. 
and and that makes some people uncomfortable. You can look around with the COVID. People would know, want to know, you know, it's this way and not that way, right? That that's not the certainty that science is the best way of understanding ourselves and our and people around us, you know, provides. That's not how science works, and that's that's a good thing. Uh, Karl Popper, you know, have written, you know, from the London School of Economics, you know, for me, defining text on falsifiability of the uh, of hypothesis. You know, if you cannot falsify it, it's not science, essentially. So uh, we approach this with all humility and all doubt, you know, but it's true that it, as usual, you know, from from the frustration, you know, seeing that baby born to humility, you know, this is this has never been you know, uh, uh, treated in any way to doubt, am I on a, on a right, uh, position to learning? Yes. You know, it seems that these, you know, I've seen last week in my clinic on Wednesday, uh, three, uh, uh now adults, uh, nine, 10 and 11 years after bone marrow transplant for EB. And yes, that's there, again, there's probably very few things, you know, in my life, personal, professional, that would compare to the gratitude that I feel that I was able to, with my team, to get them to, to this position. They are in college, they play trumpet, they swim in the ocean. Unthinkable, unthinkable. You know, I'm glad you smiling because, you know, this, this is very personal, you know, in, 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 in the right way, I hope. Uh, so the, and the iteration is such that not only that we were able to, uh, for the first time, use a hemopoietic stem cell transplant or hemopoietic transplant, hemogenic transplant, uh, because there are variants to this, you know, with the hemopoietic and stromal elements, you know, that are in the graft, uh, in uh, treating of non-hemopoietic disease, you know, that that's definitely a first. But then, uh, which I'm uh, still at awe at my stupidity, that it took me about three years to realize that if I give somebody bone marrow transplant and we exchange their immune system with somebody else, and I still have that person around, you know, that can only happen in the related setting, like a brother, sister, mother, father, and so forth, not in the unrelated, you can actually transplant a skin. And that's what we have done of late. And that has totally changed everything because this is the first time to my knowledge in history of medicine that we were able to create a tolerant uh, environment to transplant non-hemopoietic tissue and that in my opinion is going to open a door you know it's a, like a like a magic castle you know you open one door there are three doors right and you have to go through that door and there are three more right you would not you cannot jump over you know that 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 proximity, and and that was the incredibly uh, uh, deep learning. You know, in this way, uh, uh, you know, of uh, of learning about epidermolysis below. So, and then, you know, I treat uh, what's called a bone marrow failure syndromes, and uh, they fall in this genetic category of dyskeratosis congenita. It's a telomere disease, Fanconia anemia. It's a DNA repair disease, uh, give or take, and uh, severe plastic anemia, which is a, essentially a bone marrow failure syndrome for uh, typically unknown uh, reasons, sometimes known, but mostly unknown. So it all fits together. And uh, it's, uh, again, it's not a definitive, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a story that I am, uh, I am, I am glad, I'm profoundly grateful to be able to be a part of, uh, it's not my story. It's a story of the patients, it's a story of my teams, it's a story of institutions such as this medical school that can do this because uh, another learning from all of this and the machine learning comes you know, in place in this as well, you need systems, you need institutions 
to do uh, good on high impact. Uh, science, medicine, uh, computer science included, uh, is not a place for a lone agent. It just doesn't happen. Absolutely. And as you're talking about this, I'm so inspired by just your excitement and your passion for this topic. And I want to ask, what advice would you give to maybe medical students, early career physicians, or just people in their 20s and 30s trying to discover what their passion is in life? Hmm. That's a hard question. (laughs) No, no, no. It's it's a great question. I just don't want to give you, you know, a a uh, a you see um, with all respect to others and to other fields my uh, understanding is that the more things you get exposed to the better uh, so uh, that that really includes travel that includes uh, different languages like English is my third language. Uh, I grew up in different country, different regime for that matter. Uh, being open-minded to, uh, to, to almost anything, you know, that I, I'm, I'm saying almost anything because obviously there are French things you don't want to be exposed to because they are so self-evidently wrong. Uh, but, but I mean... <laughs> See, thank you don't, for not pushing me on that direction. I will not push. We can have another hour, you know, on that <laughs> alone. Uh, but 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 trying to f- figure out something that's uh, consequential enough to call on your highest talents and your highest powers, and uh, not not to settle. You know, courage is incredibly important in this. Uh, the, 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 the courage to be able to go further than you think you can and do expose yourself to challenges that are greater than you think you can manage. And be a good person. You know, it's always about, about ends. It's never about means. It's always about where is it that you're going? What is it that you have provided to others uh, rather than how you get there? Because how you get there, that's where the creativity comes from. And uh, as, uh, you know, as we are you know, operating in the uh, sort of meritocratic environment, whether we like it or not, you know, there are virtues that will, be, uh, that will be on your CV and you need them. You need, you need the accomplishment, the papers, grants, you need this and that and whatever. Uh, but be, be aware, you know, or, or think very early on about uh, what David Burks called eulogy uh, virtues and not to be, you know, uh, pathologic about this. But, you know, when, when I die, you know, people will not talk about uh, my CV, believe me. People will talk, hopefully, about the, the few that I was able to help and, um, as uh, as one of my role models that that you know most of my role models sadly are dead uh, uh, like two thousand years or two hundred years you know and uh, but one of them said you know what you leave behind is not what's carved in the monuments of any kind you know it's what's woven to the life of others I like that that's beautiful I think medical school going or going into medicine in any way, shape or form, whether it be through medical school or any other means is a very 
in my experience, life altering process. And you start to reflect on these things. And I, I think your advice is very relevant, not only to people going into medicine, but to all walks of life. Um, my last question for you is back to the artificial intelligence topic is you kind of talked about where the future of your field is going. What do you think the future of AI and medicine is going to look like in uh, maybe 10 to 20 years? I know it's impossible to say, but your best guess. Mm. <laughs> Thank you for following the counterfactual reasoning that this is a what if, right? Yep, you will um, not be quoted on this in 10 to 20 No, 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 that's, that's you know, but it's actually quite interesting, you know, because I think, you know, that's, uh, that, that self-reflection, you know, should be a part of the, any, um, you know, seriously lived, intentionally lived life. And that's why journaling is good. That's why, you know, uh, talking uh, and recording your thoughts, I think is, is helpful. Um, to your question, I think we all uh, live in future. If you think about this, we live for the day after tomorrow. We live, uh, you know, for you know, uh, uh, for younger people, you know, in in whatever we do and in whatever age we are. So we live sort of in that magic. Uh, thin layer, you know, of, of the future. And yes, we can make some guesses about this and uh, they are all flawed. So I'm not trying to avoid the question. I'm trying to be really realistic about this. So if you ask me, you know, when, you know, the simple thing is in 2020, you know, everybody, uh, everybody, universities, companies, people had sort of their 2025 plan, right? Mm -hmm. Well then, and then COVID came. So, 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 so you cannot predict this. And uh, uh, Claude Shannon, you know, was, uh, and, and Frederick Hayek, you know, were two, two people that I recall that said, you cannot predict future because you cannot predict technology. If you think about, uh, you know, I, I was in medical school in uh, 1980s. Uh, well, uh, if you ask me then to predict uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning. There was some, you know, th that's another misconception that it's like a, it happened yesterday. It didn't, you know, Alan Turing, as you know, you know, lived in Second World War, you know, this was, this was, this is not that new. Um, you would, all the predictions would be incorrect because you, we would not know that we would have a uh, worldwide web. We would not know that we would have a personal computer. And we certainly would not know that we will have all that, you know, digital mass that we have today. So 20 years from now, I don't know uh, what's going to happen with artificial intelligence. I think that what will, however, happen is uh, what has happened before, which is the, the phenomenal resilience of human mind being put in service of a very deeply resonating suffering of our patients. That I cannot see being different. That was the same at the age of Pericles. That was the same in the age of, uh, I don't know, Black Death, you know, in, in 1300s. That was the same, you know, when, uh, when the beginning of surgery started. You know, th this, this seems to be a constant. So for me, it is this um, imaginative pragmatism that comes from using whatever tools we have available to us and making them... Uh, helpful to uh, to others. That's a fantastic answer. And I'll, I'll, po I'll pop in one more question if I can. You mentioned journaling. I've been a journaler. I have about oh, 12 volumes sitting on my ah. shelf. Are, <laughs> are, are you a journaler as well? Does it, does it make a part in your day? 
Absolutely. Every day. That's fantastic. I love to hear that. I think it's just such a great way to be reflective, self-reflective and uh, yep. to facilitate growth. So that's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. You know, that's good to, to meet a fellow journaler, not journalists. But... I, I always encourage everyone I talk to who's going through something or just needs time to reflect on life. You should just open a journal. I can't tell you how many journals I bought as gifts for friends. <laughs> <laughs> You're a good person. Thank uh, you well, for that as well. Yeah, thank you. Any last words to share with our listeners? I think I think I think this was a this was a great you know great time, and uh, I'm 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 thankful you know for to you for for having me today, and uh, I wish all the best to the uh, to the team to the machine learning team, and uh, I am open to anybody's questions or comments you know now or in future. Uh, I, I like that. I get energized by people like you. I love to hear that. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Take care, Madeline.